Well, good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, please open it to the table of contents and look for the book of Nahum and then turn to the book of Nahum. Nahum is a really tiny book in the Old Testament, so it's not easy to find. Nahum chapter 1. We're going to go through the entire chapter this morning. Nahum chapter 1. The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way. And clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither, mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemy into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice, like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink. They are consumed as stubble completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated, and I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announce peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows. And never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. Lord, we're grateful for this privilege to study this minor prophet, um, this book that is filled with both judgment and joy. And we ask that as we walk through this text that you yourself will be made known. And as you are made more clear before our eyes that we've learned, we will learn to love you more and to cherish you and your word they will walk in obedience in accordance to your word, Lord. Be with us, keep us attentive, and be with me. Allow me to speak the words that you want uh, your people to hear. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. On July 13th, 1966, a man by the name of Richard Speck broke into the dormitory of a nursing school on the south side of Chicago. He broke in around 11 p.m. and he went in with a knife. He locked up around several women in a room for several hours. And after several hours, he would release each one one by one. And as each one would leave this room, he would slaughter them in their place. He killed eight women. And after the eighth woman, he decided to go home. He just left and went away. But unbeknownst to him, he did not realize that there was a ninth woman. There was one that survived. He, she hid until six in the morning. So in the mor- when the morning came, she called the police, and there was a manhunt. 
His investigation began, and after two days, they found Richard Speck in a hotel attempting to commit suicide. That they were able to revive him, and then they were able to um, start a uh, trial on him. And pretty much every evidence was against him. They found his fingerprints, they found uh, his DNA all over the crime scene, and even the ninth woman came forward and went up to him and said, this was the man that killed my colleagues. And all the jury, they said, guilty, guilty, guilty. And he was sentenced to death. And around that time, it wasn't lethal injection, but the means by which a person was sentenced to death was through the electrical chair. This was a no-win situation for Richard. He even acknowledged his own guilt. However, not long after the Illinois Supreme Court ruled that the death sentence was illegally passed, on Richard because every single one of the jurors believed in the death penalty. It, it was considered unfair and even considered unjust. They considered that to be skewed and the death penalty was replaced with a life in prison. And during the time when he was in prison, uh, a reporter would come and want to interview him and want to understand the mind of essentially a serial killer. And what they found was that Richard was, was having a great time in prison. He, was, he had developed these sexual relationships with the prisoners that he was with, and he uh, was found consuming a whole bunch of drugs. And when they asked him just, uh, about his life, he said that if the people from the outside knew how much fun he was having on the inside, that they would let him go. This interviewer asked him if he had any remorse over what he has done in the past. And his response is no. Imagine if you were one of the loved ones of the eight that slain. Imagine if you were a friend, a spouse, daughter, son, sister, brother, mother, or father to any of these victims. How would you respond to this news, that the Illinois Supreme Court's decision was that he is to have a lifetime in prison, but also that he's, he's living out his time, his prison sentence, in happiness. You would say to yourself that this is injustice. You would say that he deserves to die and that this is not fair. Imagine the frustration and anger that comes when you realize that this person who killed all these innocent people is having a time of his life in prison. You would cry for justice to be served. Sadly, in a fallen world, justice is and may never be fully and truly satisfied. This is the type of emotions that the Israelites faced at the time of Nahum. But instead of one individual, instead of just one person that did commit some sort of Atrocity. It was an entire nation. These are the people that Jonah was resistant to when it comes to sharing God's judgment. These were the, kind, the same uh, ethnicity. These are the same people. And now a generation has passed since Jonah, and they went back to their old ways. How can we live in a world where it seems like injustice can still be rampant without any consequence? Know for a fact, no matter what type of injustice that is in our world, only God can perfectly and fully enact perfect justice. The world system, <coughs> this world system has loopholes and imperfections. It can be manipulated. It can be bribed. It can be bought. It has a shortcomings that sometimes seem to allow the wicked to thrive. But know that God will have his day because nothing can escape the eyes of God. The question is, when will God's justice come? This is a common question in the Old Testament. The psalmist would always ask this question, Lord, when, when, when are you going to act? When are you going to come? When are you going to destroy these wickedness? Why are they still prospering in this life? This is the question of the Old Testament all the way down to the New and through church history, and even to today. And I trust that this 
question will linger in our minds. It will continue to be there until Christ returns. We live in a world that is corrupt. And for some of you, you're currently facing some sort of injustice. And as Christians, as you continue to know God's word, as you continue to be saturated by God's word, you'll be made known to the world that hates God, and that will inevitably invite persecution, which means you will suffer for your faith. And what makes things worse is that those that are persecuting you are prospering in this life. So how can you continue to function in this world knowing that crime can seemingly go unpunished? This book here is written about 630 uh, or to 640 BC. The actual event, all the judgment that, uh, that is written in this book actually comes to play about 15 years after it's written. Although it's known as part of the minor prophet, it is considered minor not because, uh, because it's insignificant, but rather it is a really short book. Nineveh is a major city in Assyria, we and, and they were known for their brutality. Uh, I, I said in the, when we were going through the book of Jonah that the Ninevites were people that would, would behead people and they would skin people alive. And they'll often do this in front of their families. These people were brutal. They were merciless. But not only were they known for their cruel offense, but they were also known for their strong defense. Nineveh is known for these walls that they have. There's these two walls uh, that were about 100 feet high. You can, it's said that you can put three chariots on it. It's, it. These are really high walls, and they're really strong. And in, in between these two walls, there's this moat in the middle. This moat was about 100 feet wide, and it's about 60 feet deep. That is to say that Nineveh, this great city, had not only a strong and brutal offense, but they had a strong and seemingly impenetrable defense. It's due to that that they boasted in their might and their power. And the Israelites saw this. They saw them prospering. They see all of their, their safeguards, and they wondered, when is God going to act? They were suffering for their faithfulness. And for us, we may be doing the same thing. I mentioned before, as you grow in Christ-likeness, you will suffer for the faith. And for some of you, you may not be experiencing suffering, and it could be because the time has not come yet. The time hasn't reached a point where the world wants to go against us for our faith. But another reason why you're not being persecuted is because you're not living a holy life. You're not living a life that demonstrates what the Bible teaches, and you're not drawing attention to yourself because... You live like the world. Why would the world try to silence you if you are like them? So in a lot of ways, I'm speaking to those who are living a life of holiness. I'm speaking to those who want to live for God and are, and are being persecuted for it. And if you are a believer here today, you, as you're growing in God's word, you too will be growing in Christ-likeness and you will be persecuted. And I want to equip you for that day when persecution comes. So how can we find comfort in light of all the injustice, especially if we're living for Christ? How can we find joy? How can we trust in God, even though injustice is happening all around us? How can we endure and trust in God's goodness when the world hates us? Well, there are three things that we want to dwell on. If you want to survive and to be joyful in light of persecution, especially if you're living for the Lord, there are three things that you need to dwell on. First, Dwell on the power of God. Dwell on the power of God. Look at verse 1. The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. Nahum means comfort. In the Old Testament, usually names are significant because it explains a little bit more about themselves. In the case of the minor prophets, oftentimes it explains what the book is about. Nahum is supposed to give comfort to the Israelites. He does so by by revealing the judgment that's going to be on the Ninevites. And this gives comfort to the Israelites because they know that God's judgment is coming. Evil will be dealt with one day. Those who think that God is not good for letting sin run rampant in this life is not considering eternity. If we were to remember that, that those who are persecuting us will one day have to endure all of God's wrath, it should give us these two types of emotions. It should give us a compassion for them because we want them to be saved. We want these people to, to repent 
and come to know Jesus Christ so they do not have to suffer for all of eternity. At the same time, <laughs> there's an anticipation that if these people choose to reject God, if they harden their hearts to the Lord, that their sin will not go unpunished. This generation of Ninevites were not the same as the one that Jonah spoke to. These would be like the grandkids of the people in the, of, of Jonah's time. You remember the end of, of Jonah, God said that there's some people who do not know their left hand from the right. It will be like those people, those kids, their grandkids. It's a generation ago, ago that this entire nation repented, a generation after that these people have gone back to the old ways. Jonah to them might have been just this fairy tale, this fable that they've heard of the past, of someone that, that went in and said, God is going to judge you unless you repent. But now they just see him as just a figment, something that's fake and something that's outdated. Nahum generation of Ninevites forgot that God has saved them at one point in the past. And it's because of their forgetfulness that has led them to apostasy. Nineveh returned to their old, immoral, debauched, wicked, evil, and sinful ways. And our culture is the same, is it not? They forget the good things that God has done for them. They forget all that God has done. And normal for human beings to forget the goodness of God, and especially when they deliver, when God has delivered them in the past. And that is the way even for the church. When you forget what God has done for you in delivering you out of, out, of, out of judgment, you will inevitably slide back into your old self. Forgetfulness is often the first step to apostasy. And we see that in this entire nation of Nineveh. Notice the book of the vision of Nahum. This is different from Jonah in that Jonah was written in retrospect. Jonah experienced everything and he wrote it down. Nahum is writing with foresight. He's writing with something that is about to happen. Now I would imagine that Nahum has wrote this and even some of the Ninevites have heard of it and they see these judgments and they think to themselves, it's not going to happen. They think to themselves that we are safe. Look at the walls. Look at the moat. We are perfectly safe. They trusted in their own security. Again, this is not far off from our own culture. Our own world looks at God's word and they laugh at it. They see all the judgment that's revealed in scripture and they think to themselves, when is this ever going to happen? And this is what First Peter talks about. First Peter talks about how there's going to be these, uh, there will come a time where people will rise up and they'll taunt the Christians because of all of this, these promises that God's word has to say and it seems like it's not being fulfilled. But this book should assure us that just like the Israelites, that God's word will come to pass. Verse 2. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. This whole section is really written like a psalm, like a poem. And he begins by describing the attribute of God, something that we're all familiar with. He is described as a jealous God. And in our time, we think of jealousy in really superficial terms. We think of the jealous boyfriend or the jealous girlfriend. Like, oh, you can't, you can't talk to my man or you can't talk to my girl. And that's not even the right context in which a person can be jealous because when you're dating, that person doesn't belong to you. But in the right context, in the context of something like marriage, it is perfectly just for someone to be jealous if someone's trying to intrude into their marriage because they have a covenant relationship with this other person. God is jealous for Nineveh because they were at one point his people. Remember, they repented. They turned to God. They are now part of his covenant promise. To use the New Testament term, they were grafted into the promises of God. God saves all kinds of people, and when he saves them, they belong to him and him alone. So you can see why God is jealous for the Ninevites because they end up going back to their old pagan gods. Which makes me think about a question for us. What are some of the idols in your own life? What are some of the things in your past life that is luring you back to it? What are some of the things that you, that you have in your life that is causing you to commit spiritual adultery? God is jealous because he deserves the highest affection and he alone is reserved for your greatest desire of your heart. 
you'll notice that this word avenging and it's synonym vengeance. It shows up three times. As mentioned earlier, in the book of Isaiah, the, it's used three times to describe, it's, it's emphasizing something with the word holy, holy, holy. In this case, it's avenging, vengeance, and avenging. It's just to show you that he is a avenging God. It's a highlight and showcase to the, the judicial nature of who God is. He is a God that will judge any infractions of his law. And he, will not, he will not only avenge his people that are hurt, but he will avenge himself because they sinned against him. If jealousy characterizes God's attitude, then vengeance describes the action that emerges from jealousy. Notice at the end of verse 2, is reserve wrath for his enemies. Those who worship anyone or anything else is considered an enemy of God. God displays a deliberate control of when he will unleash his wrath. God is not a God that, that, that's, that throws a tantrum. Even when God is sinned against, he waits patiently. This one jealous God is thrice described as an, ang- as an avenger to, to his enemies. And Nahum wrote this to his fellow believers of God to know that one day God's justice will come to pass. And he assures, he's, and he, he tells them just to wait. God's timing is beyond our own. And God's holiness does not have room for rivals. Whether they're Gentiles that are converted or Jews born into the covenant, all belong to God, and God is jealous for his people. And for anyone to elevate any king or any pagan god or anything above the one true God, it's deserving of all of God's white-hot wrath. You look at this complementary attribute of God in verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. He's slow in anger and great in power. It's a grace of God that God has to sinners. There's always a question, if you've been a Christian long enough, someone may ask you this question, why would a good God allow bad people to live? And that answer for that non-believer or that sinner is the same reason why you and I are alive. The reason why this evil person is still alive today is the same reason why you and I are alive. It's because God is slow to anger. He is a patient God. He does not desire anyone to perish. He's giving everyone time and time again to turn from their sin and place their faith in God, to go to him and seek for forgiveness. This is the nature of our God. This is not to say that it contradicts the last verse, but it complements it. It highlights a different attribute of our God. He is a patient God. He is slow to anger. There is a temporary restraint on God when it comes to justice. However, his weight will not be unending because God does not condone sin. He's slow to anger. He's great in power. Shows us this harmonizing aspect of God's character. And God is not like the other gods that act on a whim. But he is composed and is not hot-tempered like the other gods. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. God has restrained over his own judgment and is based off of his meekness, not his weakness. Meekness is the power that's being under control. There are those who think that if God does not act at their time, that he is somehow incompetent. God is a God of long-suffering. God is patient, but he is not weak. God's patience may be perceived as weak to some, but slowness to anger is actually mercy to those who are at war with God. Notice that he is described by his power in whirlwind and in storm in his way, and clouds are dust beneath his feet. The coming of the Lord is often accompanied by a storm or a whirlwind. In Isaiah 28, verse 2, it writes, Behold, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent as a storm of hail, a, a tempest, of destruction like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he casts it down to the earth with his hand. In Job 38, when he appears to Job, it writes that Job and that the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. Yahweh is described as a God that rides the clouds, that he is over the elements. And this is again a contrast to all of the pagan gods at the time. The Babylonian god Marduk rode on a cloud called Storm Demon. And Baal is described as a rider of the clouds. 
God is the real God that rides a storm and in control of every single one of the elements. This imagery is intended to show us the power of God. Nature trembles when God walks past it. The entire created order reacts when God acts. All of nature is under the submission and fear of God. Verse 4. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon wither. Notice the first part is that the God rebukes the sea and it makes it dry. And naturally, we think back to the Exodus. We think back to the Exodus when God parted the Red Sea. And this is intended to give hope to the Israelites. That when they are suffering and they're thinking about all of the mighty powers in the world, that they can have confidence in God, in the power of of God, and what he's already done in the past. This is significant. Because remember that moat that they had, that the Ninevites had. The Syrians had this had this moat that protected themselves. And Nahum is saying that that moat is not going to protect them. If God wanted to, he can speak and the waters will go away. Uh, I, my family got me this little Google Home thing. And, and before you set it up, it actually asked you for, to test your voice. So you're, you speak into it and it's supposed to recognize your voice. And it's supposed to, supposedly it's supposed to listen to me and me alone. And maybe Kelly, but not Ruby. So we can like command it, do whatever it wants, but my daughter can't do anything to it. Um, it's supposed to listen to me. It, it belongs to me. It is my slave. I tell it to play music, and it plays music. I tell it to set an alarm, it sets the alarm. It listens to me, because it belongs to me. The sea belongs to God, and when God tells it to move, it moves. When God tells the water to evaporate, it immediately goes up into, into the sky and dries up the river, that was once there. This water barrier that the Ninevites had are just a feeble <coughs> barrier that cannot deter the Almighty when he moves into action. God destroys this place with water, the very thing that the Ninevites tried to protect themselves with. Notice in the middle of verse 4, he described these three places, Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon. These are This is supposed to give this immediate reference to the people at the time. The prophet recalls that the more more recent devastation on Palestine itself, this is something that the Assyrians and Israelites were aware of. These three places are known for their natural resources that were a blessing to the world. And when you see these three, just the name is supposed to recall the mind certain riches or certain uh, things about them that made them famous. It's kind of like when people say that it's always sunny in California or or things are bigger in Texas. You think of certain uh, uh, characteristics based on the location that they're in. So these places, these, these places that cause us so much blessing to the world, God will make an end to it. All of these places that are prospering, God is going to end it. Verse 5, mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it. God's power extends to every part of creation. He's described as someone that can cause the mountains to quake. The very foundations of the world are disturbed by his wrath. Mountains quake, hills dissolve, earth is upheaved, the world and all of the inhabitants. Every part of the land and every creature on the land falls and trembles because of the power of our God. And if God can speak everything into creation, he can destroy it. And he can do whatever it takes because he's in charge of all things. Verse 4 and verse 5 is supposed to make us remember to trust in God's power. That no matter what type of persecution we're in for our faithfulness, that our God is a powerful God. In fact, in, in Nahum writes verse 4 and 4 5 to help set us, set us up to, and is designed for this rhetorical question in the next verse. Look at verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? These two questions are supposed to show us how nothing and no one can stand before God. When God acts, nothing can stop it. No one can stand before God's burning anger. This word endure is supposed to be a picture of someone, like almost like a military, to stand firm and hold their ground, to resist. And the question is, who can do that? Who can hold their ground against God? 
And this question just leads to one answer, and that is that no one, no one can endure God's wrath. Nahum even describes the rocks being broken up. These things are, are not hard for God. If God can dry up the sea, cause the earth to quake and to shake and make the entire planet tremble, what can the wicked do? There's no place for the wicked to run or to escape from his wrath. Again, so it is with those who persecute us in the church. When we're living faithfully, it may seem like they are invincible, but God is a God that protects us. He is an all-powerful God. And it should give us great comfort knowing that as Christians, we, don't, we can continue, <laughs> continue to live unashamed of the gospel. We can live as light to the world, and if we are persecuted for it, God will deal with them. If persecution come, let them come. We must never tremble before the world because our God causes the world to tremble. This is our God. This is the God that we worship. Let our light shine before men in such a way that uh, it's distinct and, and allow us to go and proclaim the gospel boldly. If, we want to be, if, we want to sil- if they want to silence us because of our faithful living and teaching, let them come. We must never fear because we know how powerful our God is. Verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. There's this contrast between those who, take, who stand against God and those who hide and run to God. Those who stand and attempt to go against God will be destroyed, and those who hide themselves in God will be protected. Nahum describes God as good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble and knows those who take refuge in him. God cares for those who take cover in the Lord. The God who is angry at sinners is still loving and protective of his saints. The Lord is good to those who seek shelter in him. The ultimate source of this danger is in the Lord. The Lord's source of deliverance from this danger is God himself. But he himself is also the holy and righteous judge against those who are against him. This word knows, is, it's, a, it's not just intellectual knowledge, but an intimate knowledge of the individual. He is close to those that are close to him. And those that are his, God has cherished, and he knows their, and He cares about their well-being. God knows your pain. If you are faithfully living for the Lord, and you're suffering for him, he knows your pain. Psalm 56 verse 8 tells us, You have taken account of my wandering. Put my tears in your bottles. Are they not in your book? God has a record of all of our suffering and all of our pain, not because of sin that we've committed, but of sin that's done to us. And there will come a day where he will judge those who are sinning against his people and ultimately himself. Verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This verse here is actually prophetic in that it forecasts exactly how the Assyrians will be destroyed. There's a historian on <coughs> there's a historian of the fifth century BC that wrote that the city was swept away suddenly by overflowing of the Tigris River, and the foundations of the place was washed away completely. Another secular historian wrote that during one of the last siege against Nineveh from the Babylonians, that there was a tremendous amount of rain that caused the rivers to overflow and override the city walls. One commentator writes, shortly after Nahum's prophecy, this exact, the, the, this extent of devastation becomes Nineveh's literal experience. The sites of, of cities such as Jerusalem, Damascus, and Hebron have been occupied continually from the patriarch times until today. Yet a scant 300 years after the fall of the colossal city of Nineveh, travelers hardly suspect that the area had ever been inhabited. This place was wiped out exactly the way God said it would. Not only the structures or the city, but the citizens itself will be in darkness. Darkness is a symbol of distress, terror, and dread. And may you and I hold to faithfulness because we know how powerful our God is. He can overthrow nations. He can wipe everyone away. God protects those that are his and he will destroy those that are against him. 
our God fulfills both his blessing and his judgments. Not only can we endure persecution when we're faithfully living um, through dwelling in the power of God, but secondly, we can do that also by dwelling in the judgment of God. We can live faithfully (laughs) in light of persecution by dwelling on the judgment of God. Verse 9. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Notice how Nahum describes God as, that God has knowledge of what the enemies are trying to do. That these enemies, that they, they think that they can just hide God, uh, the plans from God, that they, if they just think about it and they write these little mental notes, that somehow God is unable to read them. But God knows. This highlights the omniscience of our God. The Syrians who, who think that they can plan these secret things in their hearts, and that uh, they think that they can escape, they can't escape because, of the, because God sees all things. God knows what they are thinking and what their desires are, and God will put a stop to it. All of the plans against God and his people will cease. And distress will not rise up twice in the Hebrew. It's in fact, it, it means that the, uh, the distress will never be brought up again. It will, no, it will not be brought up twice. This, is, this, this assurance that what God will do to the enemies is a complete eradication of them and their plans. Verse 10, like tangled thorns, like those who are <coughs> drunken with their drink, they are consumed. Nahum described these people are tangled thorns. They are really prickly to the Israelites. The Ninevites are people that are difficult to, <coughs> excuse me, that are difficult to handle and are a problem to God's people. They would be consumed. The Ninevites will be destroyed completely. Yet there is this parallel that although they are like thorns, they're also drunkards. This again shows their prosperity. Any nation that is wealthy and safe will inevitably indulge in a life of drunkenness. There is enough for them to drink their life away. And though they seem to be a formidable foe, and to them... To the Israelite, their drunkenness is what makes an easy target to be destroyed. You'll notice that at the end, that they are consumed completely. The point being that those who, sit, who set themselves against God, no matter how much of a threat they are to God or to his people, they are no match for God himself. God will bring a total destruction to his enemies. Thorns are not only prickly, but they're also combustible. We see this in Obadiah 18 or, or Isaiah 5, verse 24. This is something, this nation will be destroyed quickly. Verse 11, from you has come forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Nahum calls out one of the citizens of Nineveh. And he's described as an evil counselor because of his plot against God. Different commentators debate on who uh, to debate on the identity of this individual. This person's plot is against God and God's people. They know that they cannot kill God, so they decide to go after his followers. His plot against God's people revealed the evil and the sinfulness of their own hearts. This is exactly why people persecute Christians today. They know that they cannot go up to the heavens to find God to kill him, so they decide to kill those that are still on earth. In the context of us, they can't kill Jesus, so they kill their second best, which is the bride of Christ. And again, this is what Christ told us would happen. Matthew 10, 22 and Mark 13, 13. You will be hated by all because of my name. Matthew 24, 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. The faithful life in Christ will spark in God's enemy evil plots against his followers. But take courage, and no matter what these people plan to do, and whatever they do to us physically, that our soul is safe. Verse 12, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength, and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. You will observe that there's this phrase, thus says the Lord. This is the first time in this book that this phrase shows up. This isn't to say that every other word before is not from God, rather this is supposed to emphasize what <coughs> this is supposed to emphasize that God will, will destroy them. 
The Ninevites were great in number and power, but they will not survive because God will cut them off and they will pass away. The Ninevites have undiminished strength, full of arrogance, self-confidence, but God will humble them and level their entire nation to the ground. The ending of this verse is interesting because the people of God were afflicted because of their sin against God. You recall in the Old Testament, God told them that if you are faithful to me, I will make you prosperous, I will protect you, and any enemy that will go against you, they will be defeated. But at some point, Israelites chose to turn their heart against the Lord. They chose to break that covenant, which resulted in God raising up foreign nations to punish them. And at some point, the Israelites repented, and God, but yet God still holds to those people that he raised up and account, uh, accountable. God still holds those who he raised up accountable for their action. God disciplines his people for their sin, yet he also disciplines his enemies for their sins. God is afflictor as well as deliverance from affliction. In our lives, that could be the same as well. God may raise up very difficult people to afflict us because of our own sin. We may be living a debauched life and God will raise up people to show us how stupid we are. But yet, God is still going to judge those who he's raised up. Our God is sovereign and everything he does is good. All things he does is for our good and for his glory. And some of those, some of those people that persecute us will persecute us because of our own sin, and others will persecute us because of our faithfulness. But both of them will need to give an account to God. Verse 13, so now I will break his yoke bar from upon you. I will tear off <coughs> and I will tear off your shackles. This the yoke that the Israelites brought upon themselves because of their unfaithfulness is now being taken away. God said that he will break the yoke and tear off the shackles. It's finally a relief from their punishment. This yoke, this is a wooden thing that would go around the neck of the ox. <coughs> and the shackles are these leather straps that are used to connect the yoke to the neck of the ox. And breaking the yoke is a symbol of freedom, that the animal is free. And this is the picture that God wants them to know, that they will be freed from the disciplining hand of God. Verse 14, Lord, I issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your God. I will repair your grave, for you are contemptible. The Lord gives the judgments of doom upon Nineveh. Again, there, there's this emphasis on the Lord speaking. Nineveh appears to be invincible, and their gods seem to be able to defeat all the other gods around them. Remember, Israel was defeated, but on the surface, they think to themselves that they were able to defeat <coughs> they able to defeat Yahweh. But in reality, even the seemingly defeat is all part of God's plan. God is showing himself to be the author of their destruction, discipline, and even deliverance of Israel. In this verse, you see that there's these promises of judgments. You'll see that Nineveh's name will no longer continue. Fame and stature of the Ninevites will no longer be remembered. And one of the greatest sorrow pains in the ancient times is that they are unable to repopulate. The magnitude of God's judgment will be so great that every single one of them will be destroyed. Not one of their offsprings will live. Remember at the end of Jonah, he said that God gave mercy to those that, who may not know their left hand from the right. In this case, the nation is so corrupted that every single one of them will be destroyed. The second one, the gods will destroy, that he will destroy uh, their gods as, as, long, as well as their temples. These carved images from the elements will be destroyed. And when the Ninevites were conquering other nations, they would go and destroy their gods and their temples. And Yahweh is going to let them experience what they have done to so many other nations before. And they only seem powerful because God decreed it. But now God will take it all away. He will destroy all of their gods, all their temples, to show them that he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And this last little promise here, that God is repairing their graves. God will destroy the people of Nineveh. The point of this verse is show that there will be a complete repudiation of life opposed to a living God. All the things that, the, the, that have meaning in their life, God will take it all away. 
their family, their wealth, their religion would be lost because they are rebelling against the Lord. All these type of judgments will happen to those that are enemies of God. We can dwell on the judgment of God because we know that this is the end for those who do not know God. All these things will happen to a nation that denies and rejects all things that God has spoke. God will make an end to them because of their sin. This should give us hope because although we may seem powerless to those afflicting us, we have a powerful God that will fight not just for us, but for his name and glory. We are not of this world. And there will come a time as American citizens or any world citizen that you may be persecuted for your heavenly citizen. But yet take courage. Know that our God is powerful and that his judgment is coming for those who do not know him. Those who are rejecting him. Those who hate him are going to be judged for their sin. Not only can we find comfort in living a holy life by dwelling on the power of God or the judgment of God. But lastly, we need to dwell on the salvation of God. If we want to live a, per, a persecuted life faithfully before the eyes of the Lord, the last thing we need to dwell on is the salvation of God. Notice verse 15. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again <coughs> will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. In Hebrew, this actually begins, this is actually the first verse of chapter 2. And Nahum is speaking of this joy that's of, of God's coming judgment and the wicked and the deliverance of his people. This picture is to be of this man hearing something from God and running down and, and telling people what God has revealed. It's supposed to be similar to the way that Moses went up the mountains and going down and tell the Israelites what God, who God is and what God is going to do for them and with them. This alludes to someone being a herald of good news that salvation and deliverance is coming. There, they will no longer be oppressed and tormented anymore. And it's a call for celebration. Never again will this nation persecute Israelite again. Deliverance will come from the sovereign intervention of God. And we as Christians, we have good news to declare to the world. We must be willing to tell people of true deliverance from suffering. Though the world tries to look into the world to try to solve their own problems, but we know that the greatest problem that everyone struggles with is sin. And we must tell people the salvation of our God. And we are the only people that can inform and tell people of the judgment of the wickedness, as well as protection for those that are believers. We need to tell people of God and of the coming judgment for those who do not know him. And we need to rejoice. We need to tell other believers as well of God's protection and goodness and ultimately our salvation in him. We dwell on salvation of not just from, not just for his people, but, but persecutors of this life. But more importantly, we escape God's wrath. As Christians are suffering in this world, <coughs> no matter what type of injustice that we suffer in the name of God, it's only because God is good and he's sovereign. And we can find comfort and joy in light of all that when we dwell on the power, the judgment, and the salvation of our God. We dwell on the power of God. We worship a powerful God who controls every aspect of reality. This is not a God that, that we worship that, that's just weak. This God that we worship, and this is the God that watches over us. He is a powerful God that cares for his people. It should not allow us to be fretful or fearful of living a godly life in a dark and wicked world. Because we worship this powerful God. We should live holy lives and be a light to the world. Not only that, we need to dwell on the judgment of God. That our God is a holy God and he will deal with sin accordingly. Nothing will escape God and all will be made right. And as we live this life, we know that the judgment of God only comes when God comes in his timing. His perfect timing. Romans 12 tells, tells us not to return evil for evil, but leave room for the vengeance of God. God will come and he will judge his people and it will be perfectly just and perfectly satisfying for us to see God's name being, being that was once tainted and defamed be made known to the world. 
to trust that this God will vindicate your suffering, leave room for the judgment of God. And lastly, we dwell on the salvation of God. There's this place that we're going to that we know that is without suffering, without any pain. You may be suffering now, but for us, when we get to heaven, there will be a place where there's no more tears. There's a homecoming for us. It should cause us to endure, to live faithfully, and tell others of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we do that. May we live holy lives. And if persecution comes, dwell on the power, the judgment, and the salvation of God. If you want to be a faithful Christian in light of persecution, these are the things that you want to dwell on until we see our Lord. Remember that our salvation has come because Christ has entered into this world fully God and fully man and lived that perfect life that we are unable to live. All of our evil thoughts, all of our actions, all things that we think we can hide from God, Jesus did not do any of those things. He lived perfectly. He was tempted, but he did not stumble into any sin. But yet when he died on the cross, when he died on the cross on our behalf, he absorbed all of God's wrath that's reserved for you and me so that we can have a right relationship with him when we place our faith in him. And Christ rose again three days later, signifying, letting us know that death is conquered. That although we, although we, wither, we may wither in this life, that the next life we will have a glorified body with him if you place your faith in this Jesus Repent of your own wickedness and your own self-righteousness, but look to the work of, the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And that's, and that's the good news that we declare from the mountaintop. We go and we tell people about this Jesus, both as a warning to those who think that they can live without Christ and hope to those who are looking for the return of our Savior. May we continue to live faithful lives until the Lord's return. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're grateful for its clarity as well as its promises that are revealed in it. We know that you are coming and we are pleading with you, Lord, to come quickly. Lord, For we know that although we are safe in this environment, there are plenty of other Christians all over the world that are suffering in your name. And we ask for those that are suffering in the world that they continue to live faithful lives, even for ourselves, that we continue to declare your good news and live out your word that's revealed to us. Lord, allow us to be bold, to not fear persecution, but to know that this is, even the persecution is a fulfillment of your word, that you allow all things to happen for our good and for your glory. And we long for the day where you would come and deliver us from the bondages of this world. Lord, for those who do not know you, this morning, that, that you will soften their heart to the gospel, that the reality and the promises that comes true from your word will happen to them as well as to those who believe in you. Lord, um, may we be faithful in our life, in our homes, in our, in our schools, in our, <coughs> in our work. May we be known as people that are of the heavenly kingdom. And may we tell people, of the, of the joys of being a Christian in light of the suffering in this world. We thank you, Lord. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for your attention. Uh, you are dismissed. Have a blessed Sunday.